It is such a privilege to be with you. Thank you for allowing me to be here and to make new friends uh, and to see what God is doing here in Michigan so that I will be able to pray for you now. Please pray for us in Tennessee. We want to see Jesus lifted up in power. Now, um, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The program says that I'm going to John chapter 7, but I changed my passage yesterday. (laughs) So thank you for being um, open to that. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Now, our topic is revival and Revival is about power, not just doctrine, important as that is, but power, spiritual power, power from above, power for the powerless, power for the weak, power for the unworthy. Revival is when our ordinary Christianity, our churches, our families, our Bible studies, ourselves, when ordinary Christianity catches fire with power from above, revival is ordinary, standard brand, normal, biblical, non-weird Christianity getting traction with extraordinary power from above. And we grow, under those conditions, we we grow three years' worth in three weeks. God hits the fast-forward button. We change quickly. We go to a deeper place with God. Our churches grow, and so forth. And We experience the gospel in a new way, the same gospel, experience it in a deeper, more intense way that leaves us marked for the rest of our days. Um, Revival marked me early on. I I grew up at Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, kind of a, a standard brand, mainstream evangelical church. My dad was the pastor. It was a wonderful church. Non-spectacular, really. But this kind of thing happened more than once. I remember one Sunday when I was 10 or 12 years old, I was sitting in the service. Dad was preaching, minding his own business. And it was back in the day, the choir loft was here behind the, the pastor. And in their robes, Dad was only about half or two-thirds of the way through the sermon. He was simply lifting up Christ. He was not asking for anything yet. He hadn't reached an appeal. And Ed Fisher, in the bass section of the choir, a very godly man, got up and quietly, without any self-display, found his way down to the communion table and knelt in prayer because he felt as though he needed to go into repentance. He felt, I, I need to, God is dealing with me. I need to respond. His wife, Lita, in the alto section, she got up and knelt with him because she didn't want him to be alone. And I thought, I'm sitting there thinking, huh, 
And then I look around, and all over the church, people, and these are real estate agents, stay-at-home moms, faculty from Fuller Seminary, faculty from Caltech, barbers, school teachers, ordinary folks. All over the church, people are quietly getting up from their seats, going to the front of the church and bowing in prayer. And dad hadn't asked for anything. The risen Christ took over. We used to call this the presidency of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't in the service plan. Dad had the sensitivity to just step back, go to prayer. Marsha Fox Grover at the um, organ over here, she had the sensitivity to slip into the organ, organ bench and start to play appropriately. And the service just... The Lord took the ministry in his own hand. It's just not possible to observe that and not be marked by it and, in a wonderful sense, ruined by it. And then uh, when I was uh, 18, 19, 20, the Jesus movement uh, in California there in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, I remember my senior year at at Wheaton going home for spring break and so we went over to um, there was a Larry Norman concert in Hollywood we went over there and just I think it was the Hollywood Palladium about a thousand Jesus freaks there we had our long hair and bell bottom jeans and and um, we're sitting on the floor and just having a great time together and the guy the MC walks up some kid walks up to the front of the mic and he says okay now this is how the whole event begins so how many of you want to become Christians? <laughs> 30, 35 kids stood up and said, I want to become a Christian. So, okay, you come with us. We're going to take you over here into this room and show you how to become a Christian. And then the concert began. And they missed the concert. <laughs> then the guy did it again at the end. Another 30, 35 people wanted to become Christians. And at the time, that wasn't weird. That wasn't extraordinary. It was like, yeah. I, I saw God the Holy Spirit change the subject on the streets of Los Angeles from drugs and revolution to Jesus and the gospel. These eyes have a living memory. I saw that. Nobody can tell me it can't happen. My... I think I would say my deepest life purpose in ministry is so to pray, so to preach, so to agitate <laughs> that maybe I'll see that again before I die because I want the rising generation to get messed with. I want the rising generation to be ruined, to see that, to experience that. So that when they're 67 and broken down and half dead like me, they'll be... <laughs> praying, preaching, and agitating for the same thing again, and the blessing will roll on. So I'm very grateful to you, very grateful to Jeff, that this is even our purpose. This is our agenda. It's so biblical. I realize there are many different understandings of revival, most of which I think I probably disagree with. Uh, for example, um, 
during the Second Great Awakening, Charles Grandison Finney, an American minister, led revivals and wrote a book on revival in which his thesis was revival is not a miracle. He said that explicitly. It is the right use of the appropriate means. I just don't see that in Scripture. I see in Scripture in Acts chapter 2, it says, suddenly, suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It didn't come from the pastor. It didn't come from the band. It wasn't in the plan. It came suddenly, surprisingly, from above. That's what I see in Scripture. And it's why, during the first Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled A a Narrative of Surprising Conversions. He, Edwards, was, was forced by Scripture and by his pastoral experience to use adjectives like surprising, remarkable, to explain, to account for, to describe what he saw God doing. And that's what I see in Scripture. And I revere that. So do you. We all want to be caught up in what only God can do. In a way, we wish the Lord had made it simpler. I mean, why involve us at all? We're just a complication. And yet he gives us the privilege of entering in. Revival is for people who are fed up and honest about it. Revival is for tired people, sinful people, restless people who are open to to what comes down suddenly and from above. Revival is for people who feel stuck, who've tried to change and just can't, who have reached an impasse and don't know what else to do but to look up to God and say, I have tried my level best. Would you please... Take over now, whatever that looks like. Revival is for people who deeply fear that by now, after all their history and all their failure, personal change is impossible. Revival is the impossible because it is of God. So we're not here simply to ask the Lord to bless what we can do. We're here to ask the Lord to give us what only he can do. And that means we're completely open. Now, I I want to tell you guys, I'm so not discouraged by what I see the Lord doing in our nation in these very intense times in which we live. The cultural indicators are tanking. The gospel indicators are surging. It's a great time to be alive. With any luck, we'll die in jail. (laughs) I hope you can see how God is stirring. You're a part of it. This conference is a part of it. The Lord is, is, is moving us along, shepherding us along, sweeping us along into this gospel resurgence. In our generation. And it's building. It's getting better. What I see the Lord doing is deeper, more profound, 
building more slowly, but it's it's this, this unstoppable force better than the Jesus movement because we were so goofy and youthful, it never occurred to us to write a book about it. Now we're writing books, we're, we're building websites, we're planning churches. This, this has longevity and sustainability built into it. But just think what the Lord has done since the year 2000. 2000 is nothing, just yesterday. Together for the Gospel didn't exist in 2000. The Gospel Coalition didn't exist in 2000. The Acts 29 Church Planning Network was just getting underway about that time. Um, we didn't have reformed hip-hop and spoken word poetry. I love that. Hip-hop is perfect for the gospel. We didn't have prophetic voices like Russell Moore and so forth. But now suddenly, from above, there are these streams of blessing flowing into our nation. And you're a part of it. And it's here's the best part. It's not as though there was some high-level committee of Christian leaders who masterminded all this. It didn't happen that way. People were being faithful over here. People were being faithful over here. 15 years go by under God's blessing. Bam, here's what we've got. So it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be serving the Lord. And we long for God's power upon us all more and more. So we want to go to a passage now here in Ephesians 3 that paints the picture of revival for exhausted sinners. It describes the power and grace of God for men like us. It explains what's going on in our time and how to ride this wave of blessing as long as God will give it. Now, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, it's, it's one of the passages in, in, that has just captivated my attention through the years, it is so audacious, it is so striking, it's tempting not to take this at face value. It's tempting to become a theological liberal and start scaling this back. We do that in our minds without even realizing it because it's, it's astonishing. But this passage is describing normal Christianity. Paul is presenting... Normal, ordinary, garden variety, universal, powerful, biblical, happy Christianity, which outperforms religion by a mile. The power of God is what this is about. The power of God is what revival is about. It is for you and for me in all our need. God doesn't care about what we deserve. He sent Jesus into this world to sweep aside what we deserve and to give us what we don't deserve. He sent Jesus to the cross to absorb into himself the hell we deserve so that he could pour out upon us the heaven we don't deserve. God loves giving his best to weak sinners like us today to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's ours for the asking. There's no way this can not go well. So please follow as I read these wonderful verses. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom, and I think the translation 
likely should be, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So there it is. The ordinary amazingness God loves to give guys like us and churches like ours because it, it, that's his heart. He rejoices to give his best to the undeserving. So this we know that that startling Christianity, the picture he paints there of Christianity, we know this is normative, not exceptional. How do we know that? Why is it so important that you be assured and that every one of us believe this is, this is the Christianity God wants to plant in Michigan in 2017? Why is it so essential? How can we be sure that this really is the heart of God for us and our churches? Why it, would it be so wrong for us to say, as it would be wrong, oh, this isn't for me? You know, I really don't deserve this. In fact, it would be wrong for God to give this, these sacred realities, to someone like me. It just wouldn't be right. What I should settle for something less. How do we know this is meant for us? Three ways. One, the letter we now call Ephesians was not written only to the church in Ephesus. It was written to a number of churches in the Ephesus area, as you well know, and it came to be called Ephesians because that was the most prominent of these various churches to which the circular letter went. In fact, I'm told that some of the early manuscripts don't even have the words in Ephesus, in chapter 1, verse 1. So this was a letter to many churches, which is why Paul does not, presumably why, Paul does not include personal greetings to any individuals in this letter, as he does, for example, in Romans 16. But the point is, this letter was never meant to address a particular church with its particular problems. This was meant to describe universal Christianity for all churches. Second way we know. What Paul prays for is something that he says in verse 18, all the saints share. So this is not limited to some Christians or groups or denominations. What this passage describes is the blood-bought inheritance of all the saints and that includes you. It includes your church, your family. If you belong to Jesus, you are in among all the saints. God says so. 
Number three, in verse 21, we see that what Paul is talking about has no expiration date on it. It's not a question of cessationism or continuationism. It goes on throughout all generations forever and ever. This is not limited in time. So you can see that this passage reveals the amazing blessing God wants to give you and all his people everywhere because this simply is biblical, real, faithful, legit Christianity. And there is no other Christianity. Faithfulness is more than an unchanging doctrinal statement. Faithfulness is more than immovability. Faithfulness is taking the Bible straight, including an amazing passage like this that breaks our categories open and shows us a better future. So, real Christianity is God getting involved with weak people, doing what only he can do for people who are tired of what they can do by their own brilliance and power. Isn't it wonderful to be fed up with ourselves? What a blessing. What a blessing to be so disappointed and embarrassed by the best we can do that we fall down at the feet of the Lord and say, would you please take over through and according to your word? That's faithfulness. So we have the prayer in verses 14 through 19. We have the praise in verses 20 and 21. Paul starts with the prayer because the key to being a church is not primarily how we organize, but primarily how God answers our prayers. So we pray down this power. We learn to pray from the Bible. We don't, don't learn to pray primarily by listening to one another, although that can be very inspiring and instructive, but primarily we learn to pray from the Bible so we can hold this passage open while we pray. We have in Christ every right to pray this prayer. This prayer, God likes this prayer. He gave it to us. This prayer is pre-approved. If we pray this way, God will not say, sorry, you got it wrong. If we don't pray this way, that is the risk we run. So we're standing here before this open door. This is the, the wardrobe into Narnia. So let's go there. What then can we pray for? We see the word that three times in verses 16, 17, and 19, marking the three things we can pray for. First, in verse 16, we pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit deep within. Huh. Fascinating. Why do we need to be deeply strengthened? Because it is not easy for us when Christ comes and visits our hearts. 
He comes to dwell in that hidden place deep within us where we meet him so personally. He brings to us the very atmosphere of heaven through the Holy Spirit. He brings to us his mighty love. He brings to us a new sense that he is real and wonderful beyond all this world. I think of it this way. If you take special tongs, pick up a piece of white-hot nuclear fuel and drop it into a paper bag, the paper bag needs to be strengthened to contain the nuclear fuel. So that's the first thing we can and should pray for, that we would be enabled to bear up under the mighty love of Christ entering our hearts. For example, D.L. Moody. Um, The great Chicago fire, as I recall, was in 1871. He went from Chicago to New York to raise money for rebuilding the schools and churches and ministries of Chicago. Um, But there was more involved. He was wrestling within. He had become convinced, as as I understand it, for some months that he was... He saw so much of self within. Self-exaltation. Self-interest. Self-focus. And he was distressed. He was, how can God use me like this? He was unsettled, unsatisfied, troubled. He was praying about it. And one day, as I understand the story, in the fall of 1871, he couldn't shake this self-obsession. He found ambition and so forth, love of the limelight. He was crying out to God. And the Lord met Moody while he was walking down Wall Street in New York City. He had a friend uh, who lived nearby. He went immediately to that person's house, said, do you have a room where I can be alone for prayer? That person allowed him there. And later Moody wrote, I can only say, God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. And that was how God released Moody from this deep pattern of self-centeredness. God came and poured out. God did not come bring the hammer. Christ visited his heart with such power, Moody had to ask him to back off. That is Christianity. There's no greater power to free us and sanctify us and unleash us The love of Christ for sinners coming in power. The gospel is not about Christ making our lives easier. The gospel is about Christ making our lives harder. As he pours his love into our hearts with such impact, we need strength to survive him. That's what we should pray for. Secondly, the second that 
middle of verse 17. God invites us to pray that we, being rooted and grounded in this love, in other words, as we feel under our feet, so to speak, the absolute bedrock of his unchanging love for us, and we enter into a deep assurance of salvation, we become wonderfully settled and stabilized and secure in his love for the unworthy, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, so it's not our own private, selfish experience, not aloof from other Christians, not superior to some other group, but in community with others. And I'm thinking of a Sunday morning church service and this wonderful blessing is not coming down on one individual over here or one individual over there, but on all of God's people, all the saints, God visiting his people with wonderful power that we together in our churches on Sunday mornings may have strength to comprehend what is the generous breadth of his love including us, the eternal length of his love being patient with us, never forsaking us, the all-forgiving height of his love surpassing our worst guilt, the sacrificial depth of his love lifting us out of all our failure, that we may be empowered to take in the massive love of Christ. To know his love with heart level feeling and intuition because head knowledge alone cannot grasp so great a wonder. And that's the second thing to pray for, to enter into this multi-dimensional universe of love called the heart of Christ surrounding us sinners so that we enjoy Christ all together as one. That's Christianity. We have parachuted into a universe where ultimate reality is the tender love of Christ for the undeserving. Almost nobody believes that. Christians don't believe that. We, we got to go tell them, guys. And, and then just pray this down. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Make this real. Experientialize this. The third that. Middle of verse 19. We pray it all to this end, namely, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, going through this passage, it's like climbing a spiral staircase. We come to the end, we're sort of breathless. What is this saying? This third prayer is that we, I believe, would be so filled with all the fullness of God. So satisfied with God, with who God is, what God has done for us in Christ. Christ crucified, risen again. 
so thrilled with the gospel's vision of him that sin loses its power, the things of this world lose their seductive charm and their intimidating spell, and we turn to God as all our happiness, and we find him to be so. And then we are free at heart to live for him. Fear is gone. Lukewarmness is gone. We're too happy to care about things that used to hold us back. We are filled. We are unleashed for the glory of God in our generation and the next. Filled with all the fullness of God. Those of us who are pastors, is there anything we can imagine more wonderful than this reality touching down in our churches. When we look at the world today, and it's so impressive in some ways, and I mean, you got to hand it to them. They're doing their best. There's nothing like this in the world. So that's the prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. This is real, authoritative, non-optional, miraculous, doctrinally serious, delightful Christianity. It's where the gospel takes us. He's just taught us these wonderful doctrines in the other parts of chapters 1 through 3. Ephesians, by the way, is not doctrine 1 through 3, Practice 4 through 6. It's doctrine prayer. Then the follow through. So, theologically responsible, just ordinary amazingness called Christianity takes us into the felt presence of Christ, a powerful sharing of his love together, And such boldness in God that nothing can stop us from living for him now. Now, we've all been touched by this. We wouldn't be here tonight if we we hadn't been blessed in this way. We're so thankful for God's blessings in the past. But guys, this, let's not settle. Until these words disappear from the pages of our Bible... Or until Christ comes again, we have our marching orders right here. This is our better future in Detroit and in Nashville. God's mercies are new every morning. We thank the Lord for how he's cared for us so far. But God has more for us today. He's got more for us still more in the future. As we can see here, he's ready to meet us afresh today. How wrong it is to treat God like a museum piece. How honoring it is to turn to him as the ever fresh supply. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John 1.16, the clear implication is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So we can always say, Lord, more. Through and according to your word. That's the prayer. The second part of the passage is the praise in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church 
And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's just take it phrase by phrase. Now unto him. For him. To him. He is the one our churches are for. They are not for us. They are for him. And if there should be glory to him in the church throughout the ages, then let there be glory to him in this room tonight. Glory to him at your church Sunday morning, my church where I serve. We turn from our own thoughts and purposes. We turn away from lesser concerns to him, to God, and to the Lamb. Our ultimate purpose is to give him glory for being God, for being who he is to us, doing what only he can do for us. We press in by faith. We say to him now to you, be the glory in Detroit and in Nashville. We're just never going to stop until we see this. Now to him who is able, next phrase, or we could paraphrase, to the dynamic one. God is the only one for whom all things are possible and nothing is impossible. What is it that God cannot do for us? God has never come up against an obstacle that made him say, oh my goodness, what do I do now? God creates obstacles so that he can then display his power in overcoming them. He can handle every one of us, all our sins, all our problems, all our deficiencies, all our failings, all our shortcomings, all our weaknesses. He is the able one, and his abilities overrule our inabilities. Period. Done. If we believe in God at all, we believe that, and we rejoice in that. Isn't it great to know, hallelujah, our ministries are not limited by us. Our ministries are unlimited by the grace and power of God. Isn't it wonderful just to be an ordinary sinner called to serve the Lord in the, in, in the ministry and we get a front row seat to watch what God can do? What a privilege. What am I doing here? <laughs> I land here. This is great. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. A small-minded Christian is almost an unbeliever. God surprises all of us. The Bible says, you did awesome things that we did not look for. So we ask him to forgive us, and he adopts us. We ask him to change us, he makes us like Christ. We ask him to meet our needs, he bestows honor. Our prayers and our thoughts are so limited. His power to bless is so unlimited. I'm so struck by the word all. The Bible says here he's able to do far more than all we ask or think. God isn't able to do just more than our prayers and thoughts, but far more than all our prayers and thoughts. So if we could somehow access every prayer we've ever prayed, audibly, secretly, Let's suppose each one was a box and we piled up all those boxes, all those prayers for every time we've ever prayed, all right? Pile them all up. Then every thought we've ever had about God, every Bible study discussion, every you know, sermon preparation time, and each one is a box. And so we, we take all these boxes and pile them up on top of that first pile. 
And far above it all, God's ability to bless far exceeds. (laughs) He's the best boss to work for in the universe. We never ask God for too much so that he says, oh man, that promise in the Bible, I didn't really mean it. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says the surpassing power belongs to God. We don't want to offend him by asking too little. Implying that he were diminished. Treating him as as if he were basically like us, but just nicer. The vision of the glory of God here in Ephesians 3 belongs to us. And to all generations forever and ever. This will never go out of effect. This passage invites and deserves our wholehearted faith. How many people in Detroit, how many people in Nashville perceive Jesus as this mighty? How many people in Detroit and Nashville woke up this morning thinking, man, I am facing this blessed holy, amazing God who is for me through Christ and for Christ's sake as I go into this day. How many Christians woke up thinking that way? You and I wake up, everything in our lives is bigger than God. That's why this is here. Everybody's got to know God is great enough to love anybody. The most wonderful thing about him, the greatest glory of God, is not that he hung the stars in space. The greatest glory of God is that the one who hung the stars in space cares about you. Cares about me. And he's thought of everything. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So if you need superabundant grace today, you've got it. If you need what only can do, you can have it. If you need more grace than you dare ask for, if you've already sort of spent your quota as you see it, you've got more grace coming. If you need more mercy than you deserve, you can have it all because he is able and willing and has the power to give and to give and to give. He is so not tired of you. He is not sorry he got involved with you. He is not looking for a way out. I know what it's like, and so do you, to get involved in a conversation with a high-maintenance person, and I'm noticing, I'm looking in my peripheral vision for some escape route. That's how I love. That's the opposite of how God loves. When we bring our high-maintenance needs to him, he's actually energized. He's motivated. He's thinking, all right, now we're getting somewhere. Isn't this great? (laughs) How many people believe God is like that? We got to go tell them, guys. People feel stuck in what they are. They wish they could be better. And they're not. And if they're really honest with themselves, they know by now, I'm not going to change. Okay, but what if God gets involved? This God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, not just you and me or my church, your church, but all of us together and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, now we finally, this, this is our part in, in, in this wonderful mystery. Our only part. We just add that little word at the end. Amen. That's our contribution. Yeah. That little word. We look at all that God can do, all that he offers in Christ. We just say amen. It means I believe this. I receive this. I stake my future here. I plant my flag here. I move all my chips over on this square. My future is here, or I have no future, nor do I desire any other future for me. It's either God or total collapse. God loves that faith. Remember, God took Abraham outside that night, and he said, look at the stars, count the stars. There's your future. And God sealed it to him, not by saying, I'm saying this to you right now, Abraham, because I've just been following the uh, trends of culture and the trends are moving my way now, so I think I'm on a roll here. Let's see if this will work out. No, God said, I am Almighty God. Period. Marcus Dodds, in his commentary, paraphrases, I am Almighty God this way. I am Almighty God, able to fill your highest hopes and accomplish for you the brightest ideal that my words ever set before you. There is no need to pare it down, pare down the promise until it squares with human probabilities. No need of relinquishing one hope it has begotten. No need of adopting some interpretation of it which may make it seem easier to fulfill. And no need of striving to fulfill it in any second-rate way. All possibility lies in this. I am Almighty God. That's unassailable. That's unanswerable. We just say, all right, Lord. Revival is almighty God in among us. Revival is God giving his greatest gift, and that is a great sense of God. And all this, guys, we all believe this and cherish this with such reverence. It has nothing to do with what we deserve. It has everything to do with why Jesus died. Amen.